how do we start this one? Uh, it is an amazing episode. We need to do a number. We need to do more of these. More, what, more what do you mean by more of these? these? Interpretive uh, laws of interpretation and approaches to interpretive uh, methodology, and we need to do more of these. You think so? We do. I look. I'd like to do more with just Will. So you know, I, I've we're, we're recording this now, right? And I have already edited the show and gotten it together. Yeah. So I've already listened to it, right? And boy, my regret is we didn't have enough time. Yeah, it would have been if we had five more hours. Right. That would have been great. <laughs> and and I just feel like I'm going to send him. An so email. the Venn diagram of like we need to do more on this kind of topic, and we need to do more with him. Like he's right in the middle of that diagram. Yeah, and and I you know. Um, you know, I, I think bringing back Charles, I think talking to Larry Solom. I mean, there is this whole area. There, there are so many things that we can do totally. here. And and I feel like we didn't. Be great to talk to Professor Sachs. Oh, yeah. His co-author. Right. Right. I, we scratched the surface and I feel, you know, listening back to it, I, I feel like um, we, we, we almost got into it. Anyway, this is this is this is must. This is must listen to stuff in the developing genre of oral argument on originalism i think mm. like you can't you can't listen to what's going to follow from here without listening to this episode you know what i mean true right so so we've got to track back to this one this right the place you start listening right. to this very large set right like you can't you, you a like future right. episode like this is the episode where the guy's lying on the beach and opens his eyes mm. <laughs> hopefully right. it doesn't end that way though right that's a deep, is that a deep cut? I don't are we, know. What are that, we talking about Lost? I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, and hopefully you don't look up and see a huge burning jet engine. <laughs> that's, I think that with knowing you, I totally you knew you, me, you were, <laughs> I, I knew you were talking about Lost. Knowing you and me, it will end with burning jet fuel. Mm. That, that will be. Yeah. Doesn't and, some dude get sucked into that engine as it's. In the first episode. Yeah. And there's the polar bear. Isn't that the first episode too? It looked, they set up a bunch of crazy stuff in that yeah, first episode. I remember the polar bear. Oh yeah. There were polar bears on this like, you know, Pacific tropical island. And that was like, wow. everything was crazy. They were setting all. Now the, one of the evil guys, like the head evil Are we going to do this? <laughs> you just, you, it's just, you brought it up. So the, so. The, the, the Will head. is Will is going to tell everybody to listen to this show. I know, and and, and it's going to take me two seconds to keep <laughs> okay. interrupting me. All right. all right, you're just delaying the inevitable. <laughs> so the Ted Evil guy in the glasses, Linus was was his name Linus or something? I can't remember now. Don't spoil it. You've got and, younger people who've never seen boy, it. The head evil guy with the glasses. He may be the head. He's a, he's a guy. He's terrific. He's one yeah. of my favorite parts of the show. Yeah, and he was also. E character in this subsequent series called Person of Interest about don't know that one AI that is a, don't spoil it though I've never seen it eventually about competing AIs and it's very interesting hmm. um, so he's just I just think he's terrifically talented so I when I love thinking about Lost because it makes me think of him again and he's such a great actor <laughs> so, so this is a long trip just to say that you love an actor so here's what i want to do though is <laughs> okay. i want to also recommend not only that people come back and listen to this episode in our long chain of episodes about interpretation but that um so occasionally we've talked about podcasts that we're enjoying these days and yes listening to. so there's this one called first mondays yes about Supreme court yeah i'm yeah. enjoying that one very much mm-hmm. and i would encourage people to listen to that one i would love to have them on as guests oh, that's going to be a super popular show i said so, so this is like they they do a, I think they have a um 
what, what what I listen to, they have a similar kind of ethos with podcasting as we do. It's a conversational show. Totally. But it's focused on Supreme Court practice. And, right. and um, so I think it's going to be super popular because this is the kind of thing that many, many lawyers and law profs would be interested in. Right. And they do a great job with it. They do. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that show as well if you haven't heard of it already. Don't you think it'd be fun to have them on as guests? Of course. I think it'd be awesome. Of course. So we need to invite them. Yeah. I mean, we just need to get out. We, we need to get the message out to the, whoever the employee is at Oral Argument World Headquarters who's in charge of uh, booking guests and let them know that's a... Add that to the to, uh, great, to the to do list. You make a great point. <laughs> uh, we should do more of these evening episodes. We haven't done one of these in a while. That's, you're quite right. And, and we've been chatting before I hit record. Now next week, I'm looking at an empty glass of wine here. I know, and I've got nothing. I know. We we uh, next week we're doing a mailbag. Yes. And so maybe we could do that in the evening. Hmm. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. Because we don't have to schedule anything. We just like whenever we right. want. We can have. You know, oral argument, uh, brand beverages, whatever. Yeah, we can yeah, enjoy whatever various fermented products. <laughs> or, or not. I mean, not. Not, I mean I'm not yeah. recommending that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I thought this was a great episode. We're recording a little pre-roll for the episode just to, I don't know. Why are we doing this? Is this throat clearing? Is that what we do at the beginning? Is this the stuff that drives listeners nuts? Uh, Professor Will Bode, University of Chicago. Yes. Totally awesome. Totally awesome. Uh, I got another announcement. I, I post, so two, really. One, oral argument has migrated. Did you know this, Joe? I do. This is a big week for oral argument, which should, if all goes well, mean absolutely nothing for our listeners. Right. Right? We're in a new notional space on the internet. Uh, yeah, we have a new, a new host. We've got a new website. Uh, should be, it, it looks great. Uh, Thank you for that. You put <laughs> a lot of work into it. I think it I, looks terrific. Yeah, I put a lot of work into it to try to ensure that it's seamless, that, that nothing changes. But here, here's the thing. You remember the other week we talked about the fact that we had some, some listeners complain. Let us know that let they us couldn't know that get back episodes. I can't right. download episode 14 on my podcast app. And I said, well, right. it must be because they're using like the built-in podcast app. And sure enough, I go to Overcast and you can't get them. And it turns out that our, our provider before this had truncated it to 100 episodes. Yeah, it chop, was chopping our, things our, off. Our RSS feed had been truncated in 100 episodes. So I knew we had to do something looked around, cast around, figured out the best solution for us at this point. So hopefully this is all seamless and people are getting this episode on time. We were getting chopped. No, but we're not. The, on, on our old website, which still hosts my blog and, and the Oral Argument Index, which I'll continue to update with episodes and guests as they go along until our new site has similar capabilities. But I added something I've talked about before on the show, the podcast downloads from my legal theory class, yeah, including the syllabus. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, a, it's a course in a box for basic jurisprudence and legal theory. And it's available for profs to use however they want. Uh, if you want to assign some of these to your students, even if what you want to do is assign it to them so that you can shred it and critique my yep. introduction, that, that's fine with me. I don't care. And the awesome thing is that the next time Justin Timberlake hosts SNL, mm -hmm. he will be able to do his new uh, hit satirical <laughs> song, Course in a Box. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know you were going to go there with it. I thought, I thought you were just going to, you know... I thought it was going to be more of a of a sweaty balls kind of thing where they they were going to make fun of my you NPR voice. You say you didn't voice. know, but you kind of knew. I didn't really know. I made I made a box joke the other day. I can't remember what it was. Though. I can confirm looking at my Overcast app. Yes, on my phone, that indeed the list of all oral argument episodes 
it goes appears. back to episode zero. Oh, so you didn't do anything. And I did nothing to adjust my subscription yeah. on Overcast. So it simply rolled over. Oh, this was a simple matter. Yeah, app. this was just a simple matter of, of migrating a bunch of stuff over, some of it manually, some of it automatically, and then changing a bunch of DNS records, and then testing a lot and figuring out why stuff didn't work. It was a simple matter, Joe. Yeah, simple. This was easy. It was perfunctory. Yeah, perfunctory. Uh, uh, so nearly my, ministerial. I put that out in the world for people. Um, including a syllabus with some links to the reading. So if you're interested in legal theory, maybe you're interested in that. Yeah, and you want a course in the box. <laughs> now you know where to go. Yeah, maybe I'll do more of these. I think we should do more courses in boxes. I agree. Yeah, I, I think we should do more of these. Anything else, Joe? Ooh. No, God, there's got to be something. I Roll thought there it. was another announcement. Roll it. Boy, we've got some good emails stacking up, though, right? Roll it. we got some good emails stacking up. Oral argument uh, podcast at gmail.com. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitters. We're Oral Argument on Twitter. Twitter and our new website. Won't be easy, having any vines. Easy way to get to it. Won't be having any Oral <laughs> no, Argument vines. No, we won't vines. be doing that. Is OralArgument.org. Mm, also, that's or, the new site. Also, OralArgument.net will get there. They've always connected to the basic yeah. site before, but now they go directly to the podcast. OralArgument.org is the main one. And I, I, I think the ORG is why, you know, because we've got Oral Argument. It's at Oral Argument, you know, org. Mm. It all kind of goes together. Yeah. And in this show, of course, we tease. Oral Argcon. True, we did. Let's say no more. He's in the con. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a great title. He's in the con. <laughs> Too late. The show's already named. Oh. What? Should we say that this is the last show before the election? No. Sounds like we're connected. I think we are. Hey. How are you? This is Will? This is Will. So, Will, this has been, this has been a long time coming. I think you're coming onto the show. Did did you hear the show where we suggested we needed a thoroughgoing originalist to take us to the woodshed? Uh, I, I did. I confessed several times earlier during the episode. I kept wanting to jump out of my chair and start <laughs> shouting back. Only then did I realize you guys couldn't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> that well, that is a that's a good test of your sanity, I guess. Um, uh, <laughs> that, that you realize you realize that fact. But but you know that's exactly what we want from the show. We want people talking back to the show. Do we? Yeah, that's true. Although I'm, I'm not sure I'm fully on board with the idea that we need a, a an originalist beatdown. Uh, <laughs> but 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 maybe we do. Maybe we do. Will obviously I've got all of your um well not all of your because you write you're probably writing a piece and finishing it right now as we're talking. Actually, you've written a whole bunch, but you're I, I've got a number of your originalist. Uh, now, originalism pieces linked up in the show notes, um, including the most recent one about the law of interpretation, the short piece you guys did in response to Posner, you and Sachs, and then uh, what's the name of it? I keep forgetting. I, I cited it in my recent piece. The uh, Is originalism our law? I yeah, think exactly. That's the way. Yeah. yeah. So I have those linked up. Uh, I, what's the best way to get into this, though? I think that your kind of positivist approach, at least we're, we're starting from some of the same starting points, I think. Um, a commitment to kind of a Hardian idea about how law works and how acceptance works, but it leads you to, like I said, a thoroughgoing originalism. Do you want to kind of tell us like what that is, how it's, how your vision of it maybe is distinct from say Larry Solom's idea uh, of, of what originalism is? Where do you want to start? So I will say listening to the, the episode you guys did with Charles, uh, I felt half the time, Christian, I, half the time I felt like we agreed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Every time you, every time you said, you know, Surely the question of sort of what is our law in the sense of what is our constitution is a question of positive law, right? How do we know it's the, the old document with the amendments rather than, you know, the Articles of Confederation or the Confederate Constitution, right? We know that because that's the, 
thing we all believe in as a matter of social practice. And then it's you can see how how to interpret that is also a question of our modern social practice. How do we know we don't do, is this your example? We don't do the acrostic with the first letter of every word. Yeah, that's one uh, example, but sure, yeah. Right, yeah, or we don't light the Constitution on fire and then try to see signals in the smoke, right? right? We, know, we know we're doing something else. Right. So, so what is that? So I think, you know, we're on the same page there. And then I think where my views differ, uh, probably from, from almost everybody's, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> is that when I look around at our practice, I do see a form of originalism. Um, and I guess you, you hinted at this too. When I say originalism, I guess I mean something a little different than maybe what, uh, say, Raoul Berger meant. It m- might even be different from what uh, the late Justice Scalia meant, although I'm not so sure, uh, in that when I say originalism, I just mean whatever the law, the method of legal interpretation was at the founding is by definition, originalism. Those were the originals, right? They had no other ism that they could be. Uh, plus whatever kind of, of lawful changes have happened since then, like constitutional amendments or, or maybe something else. But you do more than, than just say that, that, so, you know, when you read like Scalia's Tanner lectures or what he has in a uh, matter of interpretation, like he gives a reason to think that originalism is the best method of interpretation. And it sounds in democracy, like it all flows from what I call in the piece that I wrote, like a level four principle of democracy. Democracy implies a certain uh, institutional authority commitment, and that implies a certain method of interpretation. It kind of you can chase it down. You do more, and you say that originalism is compelled by law, or it is the law. And you do well, that. Well, is it more or is it less? I mean, in a sense, you could say it's less in that you don't need a full blown political theory. You just need to look what people are, watch what people are doing. Watch how they act. Watch how they explain how they act. Yeah, exactly. I think it might be less. So, so look, I look around at other countries. I look at Israel, where, so far as I can tell, the constitutional method used there is not anything like uh, what I think of as originalism. Same thing in some other countries. Some of them seem to be doing fine. Not all, but some of them seem to be doing just fine. So if you asked me, sort of on a clean slate, should we be originalists or should we sort of along with Jeremy Waldron, maybe just not have judicial review at all or, or do something else. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do think, I do think that for now, uh, our practice has settled on originalism and we should go with it sort of presumptively until somebody uh, successfully convinces us to change it. Now, before we get into like what that means, what, is, what does it mean to, to do originalism? Again, I think that the ground here and the reason I say that it's more, and, and again, we could quibble with it, is, is that you think that the law is what follows from an ultimate rule of recognition. So that there is some secondary rule, maybe it's the ultimate rule of recognition itself, which picks out originalist interpretation as a social rule uh, under our system of law. And departure from that rule is a grounds for criticism. This is a typical Hardian kind of approach to identifying law and law's contents. And so you say, when you look around, you not only see people with a convergent habit of using originalist methodologies, but you also see them using that as though they are bound. Their internal point of view is one of kind of seeing originalism as a guide for their conduct in interpretation. And you see people, you know, you see a convergent habit of criticism of, of judges or other interpreters who depart from an originalist methodology. Is that the sense in which originalism is our law, that there in fact is a secondary rule that you observe from not only convergent practice, but that you actually observe a social rule. Yes, yes, I think that's right. So, 
So it might be at a slightly even higher level of generality. So I don't think everybody who does this will even necessarily call it originalism, although Justice Kagan does, Justice Alito does. But think of, of the, I think of it as a social practice of continuity with the founding. And I'm, I'm borrowing liberally from my co-author Steve Sachs when I say this, uh, that nobody thinks there has been a legal revolution since the founding. There have, been, there have been constitutional amendments, there have been big changes, but every change that anybody will rely on has some explanation of how that change is itself pedigreed lawfully back to the founding. The amendments are okay because they were adopted under Article 5, and Article 5 is in the original Constitution. The precedents are okay because they're part of stare decisis, and stare decisis has been with us since the beginning. Even Justice Breyer starts out active liberty by telling us that this has been here since the beginning and it's part of how the founders thought of the Constitution. And that's the, the social practice of continuity, which I think is a, a social rule among our, our lawmakers. So is Charles Barzin right to then query whether you ought to say more about the positivism that is underwriting the assertions that you're making? That is it, does it matter whether it's Hart or Raz or uh, the or planning Shapiro. theory yeah. or, or whatever, or, or does that... Because Charles seems to think it matters, uh, but he also seems to think you don't think it matters. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, lo- I love Charles's piece, and I welcome the invitation, and we, we certainly will be saying more, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, some of this is also about how do you write an article. So I will say when I wrote the first piece, I spent a lot more time thinking about these jurisprudential problems and not... Some of it, some of it made it into a really boring lit review section that I cut because nobody reads lit review sections. Some of it made it into long footnotes that I cut. Uh, so, so I think he's right to to raise the questions. Uh, I don't think ultimately uh, it's part of how his jurisprudence work. I don't think ultimately uh, these people, Hart or Shapiro or Raz, are like magicians who we or or gods who we have to sort of like accept their teachings as one piece. So I think we could say Hart is mostly right about the way to think about these things. Although there were there were brave men before Agamemnon and there were positivists before Hart. Um, so so yes, I think it's fine to say we should get into the jurisprudence, but I don't know that we have to like pick a team. You may not have to pick a team, but to the extent that you're making a claim about law's content, it implies a theory of law's content. And those yeah. thinkers chart out very different theories, although many of them positivist, all the ones you mentioned are positivist in one fashion or another, uh, um, uh, for identifying law and, you know, a theory of how that identification works. And so it does seem like you've got to, you know, that your reasons ultimately have to be grounded in if, if those are different in one of them and not the others. Right. So just to reframe the question, because um, uh, so, so what is claiming that, that you're an originalist accomplish that denying that you were would not accomplish? Yes. Uh, you know, if, if readers care about philosophy, I'm happy to talk in terms of philosophy. Sometimes <laughs> people don't. Uh, and we certainly are positivists. That's like jurisprudential question one. We've actually gotten a nice criticism from some people who are sort of natural law style originalists who are like, we like everything in the piece other than the positivism. I think that's an important <laughs> debate to have. And we're, we're on the positivist side. <laughs> uh, I don't think these thinkers are as different as maybe some people do, but but a broad sort of we're we're harshens in the broad sense, not necessarily agreeing with everything Hart ever wrote, but we're we're generally on board with the approach and the concept of law. That's where we're going to go. Then Joe, you ask, so you know, so what is what does this do, right? So what does it mean to be an originalist, or is this a kind of uh, you know what would it mean not to be an originalist? Is that right? Yeah, because and and I ask it that way because I mean, there's one sense in which you're, you you seem to me to quite obviously uh, not be one. 
uh, which is to which is <laughs> which is the sense of an originalist is, and you've already mentioned one of them, right? An originalist is a sort of anti anti racist right winger from the seventies, uh, bleeding into the eighties, who wants to create a political cudgel, uh, and is named you know Burger Bork or Mies. Uh, and who's trying to make a particular statement about the Warren court and maybe a little bit of the Burger court. Uh, and you're obviously I mean, not one of those people. In terms of legitimacy. Correct. And in that sense, there are there probably aren't all that many uh, serious originalists left in the academic conversation in the literature from the 2000s and the and the 20 teens. Um, but but that's not all that interesting to say I'm not an originalist in that sense it will be yeah, so few people are so so what what is the what's at stake now in the label? Yeah, so two things, I think. So one thing I mean, maybe these are the same thing said two different ways. So one thing is that what's at stake is is subscribing to a particular theory of how constitutional law can change. So I think originalists, certainly I do think, constitutional law can change, but it's important that that change take place either through the amendment process or through other things that that were also allowed at the founding. Uh, So it's a theory of when legal change is okay. A different way of putting it is it's a theory that that a lot actually rides. A lot of these claims about law are falsifiable on the basis of history. So originalism could be open to the possibility that Blaisdell uh, is right about the contracts clause or that Obergefell is right about about the right to same-sex marriage. But those questions will actually rest on what did the framers of the contract clause think or what kind of law were they making, what was going on when the 14th Amendment was adopted. So originalism sort of requires you or commits you to doing the work and to seeing what those what those answers really are. Uh, and I think that's very interesting and, and compelling. And, and I really like uh, the, the, you know, the originalism has bite points that you and 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 Sachs have made in this recent green bag piece um and and the and and the sense in which you know Posner is is getting really kind of weird and and in a way lazy uh in the <laughs> in the assertions he's been making these very grand assertions about how everyone else is a totally daffy twit um but but it, but it still it it makes me so it's a great point. But I'm still uh, so I'm just wondering maybe the next thing you could say is well all right so let's take seriously this question about precedent uh, and the role that it plays in inclusive originalism. Sure. And and ask questions like what would it mean to have a sense for how stare decisis operated in okay what year or should we be asking about? Um, is it is it 1789? Um, is it 1992, which is when the 27th Amendment was finally ratified? Because I've got questions about the extent to which every amendment's ratification ratifies everything that's happened in law up to that date. Uh, you know, what date matters? And, and assuming we know what date matters, how do we figure out what, quote, stare decisis meant at that time? Okay, so can we talk about uh, can we talk about amendments first? Because actually, this was the first moment in the in the last episode that I thought uh, I I really wanted to say something. This is so, when you started yelling so, at the, yelling it into the void. I get it. The the first time, the first time, the other people at the gym looked at me like I was kind of weird. Uh, so so I totally with you that uh, the framers are not just the people in 1789 because there are a bunch of amendments framed at different times. And, you know, we don't talk about John Bingham enough. I think originalists talk about John Bingham more than anybody else, but we don't talk about John Bingham enough. Right. Uh, and and even even I'll give you 1992. So so when thinking about a particular amendment, 
we want to know at the time that amendment was adopted, what kind of law did it make? And then I think you're right, that raises for us two questions, which is sort of how far should we look back and how big should we look back? So when we adopt an amendment in 1868, are we... uh, just sort of necessarily strapping ourselves to whatever the 1789 framers did, or could we be doing something different? And I think we could be doing something different. I think the rules for interpreting the 14th Amendment uh, probably are a little different from the rules for interpreting the Bill of Rights or Article 1. And even the Supreme Court does this sometimes in its sovereign immunity cases, where it says, you know, maybe Congress has power to abrogate sovereign immunity under the 14th Amendment when it wouldn't under its Article 1 powers. Mm-hmm. Then, you guys also hinted at this, should that go broader, right? Does the 14th Amendment not just have the 1868 meaning for the 14th Amendment, but does it retroactively readopt and sort of like rewash the whole Constitution, according to those new principles, right? Do we, we see 14th Amendment at, the 14th Amendment as the refounding of the entire country and the entire constitution? Under some theory, maybe like, maybe like Amar's theory, right? Akhil Amar is, takes this grand narrative theory right. of what was going on, and, yeah. you know, a restructuring. And, and equally importantly, how would we go about answering the question? Not, not just what is yeah. the answer to the question, but how would we even know the answer yeah. to the question? Right. So, so and I think that's a thing that could happen. I th- and I think the way to answer the question is to look at how did people think, what was the public understanding of the amendment at the time? Because I think you can sometimes have an amendment that's understood to be, really, we're starting over. And you can sometimes have an amendment that's understood to be, we're buying into the system. And if you look at the adoption, especially in Reconstruction, this was actually a little bit of an open debate. There were some people who thought, no, we should start over. The original Constitution is so tainted with the original sin of slavery that we should start over. And the people who won were the moderates who said, I don't think we need to start over. I think the system's okay as long as we make some big fixes. Um, but I think that's a question you answer by looking at the, you looking, looking to the past and looking at what the law and political theory of that time was. Now that surprises me a little because I would think that the way you would have started your answer would be, How did lawyers and judges, more importantly judges, because they're officials, right? How did officials in the wake of the amendment act on this question to the extent that the evidence provides, uh, you know, some insight into that, right? So not what people were thinking or saying before it got adopted, but, but how people started acting as officials that would reflect their internal point of view about the status of this question. This is always tricky because we have the positivist originalist has these multiple layers of time. So, so really the first question is always about 2016. What do officials in 2016, uh, what are we committed to? Uh, maybe not even just officials, maybe everybody, but what are we committed to as a matter of law today? So that's always the positivist question, right? right? That's the harsh question. And then I think for, for reasons written about that, that what we're committed to is looking back. Uh, so we're committed to looking back to when the amendments are adopted, because we see that as the key act of lawmaking, uh, is when the amendment is, is you know, proposed and then ratified. So then the question is, what did those lawmakers do? What kind of law did they make? They are the lawmakers who we today agree to look at. The people right afterwards, the people who implemented that law, or in the cases of the 14th Amendment, often nullified that law. I think they're interesting more for historical purposes than legal purposes, right? Because they're not our lawmakers anymore. We don't have the slaughterhouse court around anymore. And they're not the people that we today have uh, agreed to see as lawmakers. We see the, we see the ratification as the key moment of lawmaking. 
when when I look at a Supreme Court um, battle over, you know, let's just take a hard case for a second and separate whether easy cases and hard cases make make a big difference here. But just take a, a hard case of interpretation, and I see Justice Breyer in a in, in I, I mean, you'll admit that there are non originalist opinions that come out of the Supreme Court, right? I mean, Justice, Breyer, I mean, there there will be sometimes originalist rhetoric. There'll be some uh, nod to the uh, to an original moment. But it certainly is the case that there are non-originalist opinions. Now, when that happens, I often see dissents from formerly someone like Scalia or someone else who will say that, you know, this breaks with our tradition and here's the here's what people were thinking at the time or here's how they thought of this at the time. And, and that's a reason to dissent, right? They cite originalism as a reason to dissent from the majority opinion. In one sense, you could say that's consistent with the idea that what the dissent is doing is citing the uh, the breaking of a social rule by the majority, right? The social rule is that you have to look to not only originalist meanings, but originalist methods of interpretation, because that's also part of our law. So so you could cite that. But I wonder if dissenting is different from criticizing from departure from an ultimate rule of recognition. Because after this happens, the dissent, you know, the dissent will dissent, but it will adhere to the fact that what the majority did was in fact valid. You don't see the Supreme Court erupting into fistfights or break, or dissolving as an institution, right? There's an agreement to disagree, which seems to me much, which seems to me even more basic than any particular commitment to a method of interpretation. So, so yeah, so no, I, I, I look, I don't think, I don't think that uh, to resist something, to say that something is against the law, you necessarily have to take up arms against it. Sometimes you can criticize it, but then we also move on. But I guess I'm still stuck at the premise. I'm actually not as sure as you are that Justice Breyer has ever written a non-originalist opinion. So I look at at Noel Canning, right? It was probably the last time that Justice Scalia flipped out on Justice Breyer for not being an originalist. Um, and Justice Breyer seems to me to also be trying to do originalism just at a higher level of abstraction. So Justice Breyer says, I'm going to look to purpose and I'm going to look to historical practice after the founding. But he says the reason I'm going to do it is because it's part of this method of interpretation called liquidation that James Madison anticipated at the founding, and that is permissible when the text is ambiguous. So I see Justice Breyer actually as as playing the the originalist game. So what do you make of their public appearances? The the two of them had several public appearances where they talked about the different approaches they have to interpretation. And my recollection of these appearances, which I enjoyed watching, I thought they were very engaging, uh, both of them, um, uh, both Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer. Um, my recollection of these engagements is that Justice Breyer would quite literally and explicitly deny being an originalist, which is what he ascribed to Justice Scalia, who accepted it. So what was at stake when he was denying the label you seek to apply? I'm not quite sure I understand it. Yeah, so and I'm happy. I mean, look, if we want to call, if we want to get rid of the label originalism and, and come up with a new label, uh, I actually don't uh, have that much writing <laughs> right. on it, uh, yeah. although I do think it's helpful. If being an originalist means being like Justice Scalia, then obviously Justice Breyer is not like Justice Scalia. Uh, <laughs> if being an originalist is something more inclusive, and that's that's comes back to me, I guess. So And, and Justice Kagan, at her confirmation hearing, said she was an originalist. Yep. She didn't say that she was an originalist like Justice Scalia. <laughs> On the contrary, she said, if being an originalist means that when the founders had a specific rule, you follow that, and when they had something more open-textured and evolving, you follow that, but either way, you follow their choice about what the law was, that, then I'm an originalist, and then we're all originalists. And I think Justice Kagan's right about that. So, so you can consider Justice Scalia 
uh, yeah. I try exclusive originalist, but but Justice Breyer is an originalist just in the broader sense. So they all agree that the criteria for law in our system is continuity with the founding, and then they just they just see different things in there when they look at the facts. If it's at that level of abstraction that they're, and you know, we can get into what was happening at the founding, what continuity means, and how to balance strong signals from the founding against results that would be let's say, highly unpragmatic now. And my sense of Justice Breyer's overriding theory is that it is one of a a kind of a pragmatist approach that is justifiable to the people now by reference to often, maybe almost always, by reference to pre-existing authority, but in such a way that leads to an acceptable result now, right? That, That the fundamental job of a judge is to be able to justify his or her work to his or her audience, contemporary audience. We could put that under an originalism tent because like many judges, he's concerned with what's, you know, I mean, we'll refer to the founding moment, but is that all that originalism is? And if it is, is it constraining in any way? So again, yeah, I guess I do think, uh, obviously, Justice Breyer cares about pragmatism, but I think he, it's notable that he always frames his pragmatism in terms of a legal practice that's been around since the founding. That act of liberty starts with the founders, doesn't start with, with Dewey or with, or with Justice Breyer. Um, I think that's, I think that's important. Um, so I guess, so I guess I may agree about where it comes out, but I think the, the originalism is a part about the story of how we get there. You could substitute Judge Posner if you want to. So Judge Posner's not an originalist. Yeah. yeah Judge Posner's a good, Judge Posner's a better example. Judge Posner, I think, doesn't care about pedigreeing himself to the founding. Uh, I think that's true. I think he denies that he's an originalist at all. Uh, now even there, it's something very interesting. So sometimes when he gives public talks, he says, well, sure, the text is binding when it's clear. It's just never clear. And then other times, a couple of times, he's given a talk where he said, even when it's clear, I don't care. The president doesn't have to be 35. You know, it's just ridiculous to follow the Constitution. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but a couple of times recently he's done that and then has, has walked it back. Yeah. So there was a, a recent uh, exchange on Slate at the end of the Supreme Court term this summer right. where at the end of it, Justice Posner – Judge Posner, sorry, I elevated him <laughs> – uh, Judge Posner uh, had to publish an apology uh, where he said, some of my comments may have given the impression that I don't care about the text of the Constitution. Of course I do. Uh, Of course it would be wrong for me not to uh, follow the text of the Constitution when it's clear. I just don't think it's clear. I think that's the kind of criticism for violating a social rule and then him, you know, recognizing the criticism. That's exactly the, the harsh signal we were talking about. So let's go to back to the constraint point, um, because, again, I'm, I'm and I'm stuck on these stare decisis ideas, because I think it's probably um, as your as your paper, your is originalism, our law. I mean, you, you spend quite a bit of time engaging on this in the McGinnis and Rappaport book and, and this other stuff, this debate about what role stare decisis and precedent uh, can or can't play in originalism seems to me very significant. Uh, because to the degree that very robust common law development uh, of of the stare decisis and precedent variety, to the extent that that can happen uh, in the constitutional system and be part of the pedigree that links something today to something from whatever the relevant date is in the past that we pick, um, that that that's gonna that's gonna ratify or underwrite an enormous amount of of what. Some people might complain about as as not legitimate because so, it's a rule that selects radically different authority. 
I mean, yeah, and right. and it centers it, it kind of it kind of focal it, it creates a focal point around human judgment and the permissibility of human judgment that um, that my sense is originalism of the older variety seeks very much to deny right uh, and to escape. Um, so so what you know what what sort of evidence um, for example if we're thinking about uh, when a case can be overruled. And let's focus on constitutional cases. So if we're thinking about discussions of, you know, Planned Parenthood against Casey, where we're not going to overrule Roe, or we're thinking about Lawrence against Texas, where we are going to overrule Bowers against Hardwick, we, you know, do, we, do I have to point you to something from when and, and what's the date? Do I have to point you to something from Justice Marshall talking about when it's okay to overrule a constitutional case? Uh, because if I do... I'm probably not going to have one, right? The court, I don't, I don't know that that ever happened. So first of all, I'll say there is more of that stuff than you'd think. Uh, and actually, this is an area where people are still, are still writing. Uh, some of it's not Justice Marshall. Some of it's James Madison, who wrote a lot about settlement or, or liquidation of meaning and when things could be fixed. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a case. It, it doesn't have to be a case. It doesn't have to be evidence that an official... So Madison, as president, worried about this too, because precedent is not a problem that, that is only for judges. Everybody in the government has to interpret the Constitution. Hmm. And so Madison, as president, uh, worried a lot about, you know, he thought the National Bank was unconstitutional. He'd fought against it in Congress, but he'd lost. Mm-hmm. And then, as president... Should he, must he veto the new bank bills, uh, or could he sort of adhere to the precedent that the bank was okay? And he thought he could adhere to the precedent that the bank was okay, and he had reasons. Uh, he actually wrote extensively about about why in terms of precedent and in terms of what the theory of precedent was. So I think we have a lot of stuff back then. But let me just say, I don't think we have to look only at that, because I do think to the, if precedent is sort of a rule of, of common law or general law, then we've also got the question of, can the details of that precedent change a little bit over time, right? So, so tort law is not the same as it was in 1789, and that's okay. Uh, and so we also could say maybe the, the rules of, the, the principles of precedent are eternal, but the details of the doctrine maybe change a little bit uh, from decade to decade. So, so that sounds very uh, lawyerly and, um, and very good. Thank you. Like, and, and, right, because I, you know, I will say reading the stuff um, – your stuff and 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 Professor Sachs's stuff, and um, not only are you a very good writer, um, a, a really elegant writer, uh, you're you're obviously also a very thoughtful lawyer, a, a sort of lawyer's lawyer type. That you know, so I can imagine someone saying that to you either recently or or in your future. Um, and I think those are good things. I mean those as compliments. Um, so so that's good. That's a nice lawyerly answer. Um, I wonder though. Uh, so okay, so, so, so I'm back to the constraint on, question, let, which let, is Will, come, Will, I wanted to, you wanted to, yeah, go ahead, Will. Well, well, so what's let, the constraint there? Well, so right? let, let just, I, I don't let me, get, I don't, I don't hear the constraint yet. I love it. Let me just intervene. So this is the other moment I most wanted to shout at the at the podcast. <laughs> Apparently, uh, this is so clear now. <laughs> yeah. So 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 there's this idea that originalists are. I, I don't know about cutting off the conversation, or about about shutting down uh, judicial activism, or about getting you to stop talking about stuff, or almost right. almost anti-intellectual. And I guess I don't see any of that at all. So I see. I mean, I, I believe in freedom of speech. People should, should have all the conversations. Uh, I think a lot of these these sort of big realism questions uh, people talk about are, are real and true. And originalism is the I think is the legal project 
of figuring out what to do with all that stuff that's going on and trying to figure out what, what pieces of this judges and lawyers should actually focus on and actually do the work. So it's, it's more about trying to kind of find the pattern in the chaos uh, than it is about, about trying to impose rules or, or drop rocks on judges who are doing things wrong. Yeah, but see, this is interesting because I think it's around page 60 of, the, of your paper with Sachs where you start talking about um, the gap between uh, – um, oh, now I'm, I'm losing some of my words here – but there, there's sort of the gap between um, – uh, oh, it's, in, it's your discussion of the construction zone in Larry uh, Solom's work. And, and you refer to this notion of a gap between interpretation and construction as being a, quote, catastrophe – Right. That someone <laughs> someone could worry about and you say, you know, people could be forgiven for thinking that this is a catastrophe. And of course, my immediate thought was, no, they can't be forgiven for thinking that that's uncommonly stupid to think that's a catastrophe. <laughs> right. Of course, it's not a catastrophe. It's 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 human. <laughs> it's this. a situs of human judgment in law. Ever has it been thus? Uh, so I don't. Uh, I, uh, I'm glad to hear you describe what you describe now, but it's a little surprising to me. Was did Steve write okay. that paragraph for you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and 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 Will, he was the one who just described you as the lawyerly one. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I think there's a co-authorial privilege, but <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're right there. So 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 let so let me try this. Uh, and uh, you're not the first person to to say that sometimes I can be a little schizophrenic about. Judicial discretion, is it good or is it bad? Uh, I, I don't worry so much about the willful judge or the bad judge and how to constrain the judge who really wants to, really wants to you know, be, be political. Uh, in part, because I don't think there's anything you can do about that. The judges who really want to be political, uh, no parchment barriers will stop them. But I spend a lot of time worrying about the puzzled judge who wants to get it right and who wants to be told, where do I go to get it right? Like, what book do I look at? What kind of thing do I look for? How do I, how do I resolve this case? And who's not reassured by being told, use your judgment. Because they say, yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm here for your help with. What, what should I be judging when I use my judgment? And so I guess that's, that's where I think things like originalism can help a lot, is by giving the judges who, who want to get to the right answer the right questions to ask and the right facts to look at about, about where to look. And that's the potential catastrophe in construction just being, well, the text is ambiguous, so, you know, build it. Uh, and the judge says, well, thank you, but what are the plans? Yeah, and that's kind of a humanist. I mean, that, that's a very humanist perspective and an empathetic perspective. And I, and I, um, and I think it's very valuable uh, that, that this is a genuine quandary, a person who's, who's given the great responsibility, the heavy burden of making these judgments, that's a quandary that that person could genuinely have. I mean, I, I kind of flash on this amazing radio story. I can't remember which uh, podcast it was, but some, um, it might be the, the radio labs thing they have done about Supreme Court cases where they, More I think they did an episode about, about you know, um, uh, Poor Justice Whitaker, who, who's and, and Baker against Carr just kind of breaks the guy. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> and 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 there's a real I mean, that's such a, that's a story of great of of great um, of genuine human uh, uh, challenge and difficulty. And, and I think you can you can't have anything but sympathy for the guy who is trying in a way he's kind of asking the question you're asking. Right. He, he yearned desperately for an authority. And it's not clear to me to what extent his mental break had, you know, I mean, these things are overdetermined sometimes. But it, clearly did, it didn't help that he yearned so heavily for an authority. 
and believed in it but could not find it, right? I mean, that was it was a compelling story, I thought. Yeah, and he, and it's sort of like a lawyer who's saying, look, there's uh, as a lawyer, I'm familiar with the notion that there are established legal practices that I view as obligatory. That's part of being a lawyer, right? And, and I look around here and I'm asking my colleagues, like, okay, how do I, what do I look to? Well, it's, it's the way that I see this argument is that it's as if we have three doors, A, B, and C. And, and Will, taking the positivist spin on originalism, is saying there is some instruction out there. there there's something written down out there. And what I observe are lots of people looking at that thing and going through door B and not door A and C. And further, talking to each other and saying, looking at the thing, looking up and saying, you should go through door B, right? And observing that, I then conclude through this kind of Hardian technique theory, really, that, that one should go through door B. That's the way one should interpret the document. And the document speaks to doors. It, it tells you which door to go through, right? And in some way, it is an authority. It, it directs at least the, uh, the inquiry, right? You, now that you're going through door B, we can argue about what we should do after that or how we should walk through it or in what way. But, but at the very least, it kind of, you know, it canalizes the, the inquiry. So can I be a little, can I be a little uh, harder on myself than that? <laughs> I, I, I think you have a mix of people. So I think some people go through door B and some people go through door A. And every once in a while, somebody goes through door C. Yeah. But what you see all along is everybody talking to each other in the, in, the, in the entryway as they look at all the doors. And you see the people who go through door A saying, the document definitely tells us to go through door A. And then you see the people going through door B being like, you're an idiot. The document tells us to go through door B. And then you see occasionally the, the door C people being like, I don't know what you guys are smoking. And the document tells you to go through door C. So, so you see different doors, but you have a collective conversation in which everybody agrees that the question is, which door is the document pointing to? And, and we just disagree about, about where the document right, points. But it's, it's the, you know, and I, I have a hard time talking about this without getting into my whole theory about it. So I'm not going to do that. I promise you I'm going to focus on what you've done here. But let's just assume that, that we got door A through. And what I see is I see a bunch of people doing what you've described, but then another person finding a book which describes a bunch of people early on as going through door A, and before the document was even written, people going through door C. You find the occasional judge now going through door C, and it says, I don't even care what the document says. <laughs> Most people are saying they do care what the document says, but they and go through door B, but if you go through door A. And then another person does a study which says, if you just show this document to person on the street, they'll say, oh, obviously door C. And and then we have evidence from in between when the document was written and now of people going through maybe door D, which has now been taken down and destroyed and no one can go through it anymore, right? So it seems to me uh, that it's at least possible to imagine this kind of ridiculous scenario. Um, and, and it does seem to describe our, our practice, right? I, I mean, I actually agree with much of that picture. I guess I'll say, you know, I, I mean, is it the right time to say it? I could be wrong about all this, right? It could <laughs> be that our practice doesn't actually have a law of interpretation. And that when Justice Breyer and the late Justice Scalia disagreed, contrary to my view that they were all kind of meta-originalists, that they just weren't, then there was no law there, and their attempts to, to act like they were engaged in a common project were wrong. That, that could be, uh, right? There's nothing, there's nothing magical about human capabilities or legal interpretation that means it'll all work out. I think it's not true. I think there is something more there, that we're all engaged in the same project and that I have the best picture of what, what that project is. But, uh, you know, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess what I would 
What I, what I would say is that if, if I look around at what the ultimate rule of recognition is in the United States, first of all, I'm committed to this idea that every institution has its own ultimate rules. And it's not obvious to me that every institution has to have the same rules of interpretation or should have the same rules of interpretation. But putting that to one side. And what rule decides which, which, which institutions they are? What, what rule decides that the court is the court? Well, it, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a positivist too and, and, a, and a Hardian in a way. And, and so I think that each institution creates its own ultimate rules of recognition, right, which it either accepts or doesn't. The institution's continued existence depends on continued cooperation, which depends on mutual acceptance of the, uh, uh, the mutual models that each identifies the other as having, right? So, so if it, it, take the United States Supreme Court, for example, its continued existence probably depends on each accepting the rule of five, probably subject to a more detailed rule, which says I'm only going to accept the judgment of another justice if I can, if I accept that they are actually making an interpretation of the Constitution. Sure. That's the sense in which I'm an originalist. I mean, I, that I think, you know, if I were a justice of the United States Supreme Court, I would commit, be committed to the idea that my actions are controlled by the Constitution. Right. Where people quickly disagree is what it means to be controlled by the Constitution in the same way that, uh, that we described the document in the doors earlier, right? You could have contemporary um, opinions about what a text means, right? What does it mean for a text to be relevant? So the evidence that they have a rule of recognition as an institution is that they all showed up at work and functioned. They functioned and and they continued functioning, which means an acceptance, you know, each of them is imagining what human cooperation means, right? Is that I'm seeing, I'm seeing what you're doing and saying, and I'm making inferences about your decision-making process and I'm accepting it right, in the context of our broader cooperation. And we can point to examples historically that where, where that didn't happen, right? The election of 1860 yeah. and its aftermath is an indication that, you know, this sometimes this doesn't occur, right? right? Where part right. of the country yeah. decided we can't, uh, can't, we're not up for that. That means you think right. the United States is fundamentally a different thing than we think it is. And, we've, and so we're going to go back to our drawing board and create our own constitution uh, for the Confederate States. Right. And just to zoom out for a second, so so thinking about the court, so if Justice, if Judge Garland were to say, you know, I'm sick of waiting, uh, and just just announced that he was now on the Supreme Court, and in fact that he was the only one on the Supreme Court, and he was going to have his own Supreme Court run out of his living room, right? He just starts issuing uh, opinions in the same cases. I take it we, we both agree, right? No, nobody would follow uh, that. Justice Garland's uh, rulings, you know, he'd meet his own rule of recognition, right? He's totally satisfied with his own social practices. Yeah. Yep. But, but the president wouldn't follow, the army wouldn't follow, nobody would criticize somebody for disobeying the writs from the Garland court. Yeah, I talk about the same thing with my students in legal theory, right? Why do we follow the rules that um, are, are laid down in, in statutes of a certain kind, but the, the person raving on the street corner saying you have to do this or that, you can safely ignore. And, and, and your hypo has Justice Garland assuming the position of the raving person on the street corner who is telling us right. that with his no, commands are authoritative, right? But, right. you know, right. with no offense meant to Judge Garland, obviously. Right. But, yeah, uh, the but, much more, isn't yeah. the, the more interesting because maybe slightly more realistic, although only slightly, um, hypothetical is, the, the announcement that the failure to uh, vote him down is consent and the president and Justice Garland agree uh, and he shows up at work. And what do the other eight justices do? Right. Yep. And if and if four of them decide, hey, we think this is great. <laughs> and the other four decide this isn't so great. Uh, and so ha four justices think that a case that's decided 5-4 is actually a 4-4 decision that has to be affirmed without opinion. Right. And the other yep. uh, th 
think they're right. part of a five justice majority, right? That could actually now you're really starting to get they're, to they're, they're stopping a hypothetical they're, that right. what they're stopping is their right. agreement to disagree, right? And to cons- and to reach a consensus on output, even if they disagree on what that output is, they're disagreeing on joint decision making, right? To, and you could go into right. the you know the Searle Gilbert and, and know, unlike Garland's living room hypothetical, but, my but, hypothetical let, actually let me, brings answer, that to bear. Let me answer it. Will's original question though. So I would say I would say that um, my empirical prediction is that no one would follow a raving Justice Garland with we, justice in quotes. Like, no, my, that's my empirical prediction. Now, I personally would this not This is fo- the living room hypothetical? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, we're all agreed right. no one would follow yeah, that. Right. Uh, well, well, I'm predicting no one would follow it. I mean, it's possible to gin up all kinds of scenarios in which people find him more compelling, et cetera. Now, I personally would not follow him. And my reason for not following him, right, is that my model of legality, right, which is derived from all sorts of things, yeah. right? Uh, starting with the idea that the Constitution controls, and I have my own idea of the interpretation of the Constitution, informed by what I think other people are willing to accept and how we can best cooperate, etc., does not identify his commands as authoritative in any sense. For, but I go further and, and reject a model under which they are authoritative, right? I cannot accept a model under which the commands of a, of a rogue Justice Garland are authoritative. And in that sense, I'm unwilling to cooperate, right? Yeah. And unwilling to treat them as authoritative. And that, those are subtly different things. And now I, right, now I, th- I think all that's right. And then I think the key thing, and this is also what's interesting about Joe's hypothetical, uh, is that I think one major reason we predict nobody would obey the kind of rogue person who reclaims themselves of justice is because he didn't comply with the clear constitutional requirements of being appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Whereas the one, the one Joe came up with, where there was at least a, a colorable argument about how to interpret consent in the meaning of Article Two. Now, you know, now we got a ball game because now there's a there's a textual argument, and I think that's that's a sign of the widespread acceptance of the Constitution as our rule of recognition. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, but I don't know that that makes the originalist point. N- not not by itself. No, yeah. I think that's just once we're once we're there. Once we're there, then I think we agree in principle we've got some law and that the text of the Constitution is part of the law, and maybe then we just just don't agree about exactly how far that goes. Because uh, I think we also agree that accepting the Constitution doesn't include the acrostic method of interpretation or the entrails method of interpretation. Right. Some methods are ruled out. And then the only question is, are we down to one method that we all agree on, or do we have a set of competing methods? And it's not just about um, agreement. And this is, this is my point in perceiving law, right? It, it's not just that – it's not that we have to get down to it, – it's whether I can accept and continue to cooperate with you despite our difference in interpretive method or our difference in what I think should be, you know, at a very high level, the secondary rules governing our institution, but not at the highest level, because the, the highest level involves my acceptance of your model, basically agreements to disagree. And, and, and there, I, I look at all the evidence and, and um, may, maybe I don't look at, <laughs> maybe if I looked more and maybe you could persuade me, Will, um, but I just don't see evidence that there is a cons- anything that you could consistently call originalist that explains the acceptance of you can take Wickard against Filburn, although I think I think you could have an originalist argument for Wickard against Filburn um, it, that that explains the behavior of judges in all cases. I mean, I when I observe the judiciary, and this is just speaking about the judiciary, much less the agencies and other institutions which have their own interpretive rules. I, I don't see a singular method. I see basically an agreement to tolerate a heterodoxy of methods within a certain zone. Right to the extent that someone's interpretive method is, I'm going to do what enriches my bank account. And we detect that that's what they're doing. Then we do see disagreement and and discontinuance of cooperation. That person is kicked out and prosecuted or otherwise. 
Am I am I wrong about though? That how, how do how would you convince me to to come from you know dipping a toe into the originalist project? Yeah, was, to uh, coming fully on your side. Yeah, I mean, so I'll say in some ways we're close enough that I worry less about that disagreement than I worry about a lot of the disagreements. So if, if we if we agree, there's a, the the zone that you describe and, and that family. I, I feel pretty happy. I think the missing piece, I guess, is is people who who are in that zone who are are disagreeing. How much do they really agree to disagree, and how much do they still claim to wield criteria that shows that the other person's theory is legally wrong. And I guess when I see people complaining that Justice Scalia was acting contrary to our traditions, or when I see Justice Breyer worrying about whether active liberty is part of a tradition going back to the founding, Mm -hmm. I see some evidence that that there isn't totally just uh, agreement to disagree, but people are still also trying to, to apply some kind of meta rule that says who's right and who's wrong. If they really agreed to disagree, nobody would bother to criticize Justice Thomas. Did we talk about that Monopoly example in the show with Charles, or did we not talk about? I don't it? think so. No, this is the one I use in the in the piece as well, and and I also use it with the students a lot. I think if we shift to games and game playing, it kind of uncovers some things. I think I argue it does. But yes. so imagine a bunch of people playing Monopoly, and uh, some people play, as you know, where when you have to pay income tax and stuff, you put that money under free parking and you inject a bit of gambling into the whole thing. And that's fun because people love gambling, right? Yep. Some people don't play that way. Some people play according to the auction rule, where if you land on a piece of property and and you decide not to buy it, then it goes up for auction and it goes to the highest bidder. And there always will be someone who's the highest bidder, I suppose. And that's a rule prescribed within the uh, formal rules of the game itself. It's in, it's in the instructions. and Although most people ignore a, it. And almost any interpretation would, would assume that it operates like I just described. Yeah. Um, again, <laughs> avoiding the idea that there's a unitary form of interpretation. And <laughs> and so when we get together and play, say, say, you know, say you were over here, Will, and wouldn't that be fun? It would right? be great. <laughs> uh, and and we had, you know, we had some drinks, we're having a good time, and we pull out Monopoly to play. I, I think we'd probably decide on a better game. Probably, but, yeah. But let's just assume it's Monopoly. Nathan could come over. That'd be great. Yeah. Oh, it'd be, yeah. We got, you know, Charles, you know, mentioned we should do an oral argument con. Be so great. It would be, it would be amazing, be right? Awesome. This is just like, what's the there. topic? I'm there. What, the, to, the topic for oral argument con, the, the organizing principle is awesome ideas. Yeah. Right. Right. And, which means that we have to invite a bunch of other people because it can't just be us. Right. And it also means they're, pro- they're probably we're almost certainly not playing Monopoly. Right. OK. So so anyway, we get out Monopoly and we start playing and and maybe we play with the auction rule. Maybe we don't. Right. But we're just playing along. And when someone has a question about like whether I can build a hotel now without having built four houses or something, someone will usually advert to the rules. Yeah. Right. And say, well, the instructions say blah, blah, blah. And and other people will accept. Right. That because even though we didn't say it. When we pulled out the pieces and the board and we set things up, there was an, you know, if you, if you had polled people and you asked them, like, what, what, what are you agreeing to do? It's like, we're agreeing to play Monopoly. What does that mean? Well, it means whatever those, the rule book says, right? So they, they advert to the rules as basically the authority. But if someone, you know, they didn't know about the auction rule and someone points to the rule book and says, hey, there's this auction rule. A lot of people say, well, that's not the way I've ever played. And the game is perfectly fun without using that rule. Yeah. And has that changed the game they were playing from the beginning or not? Another example I use is suppose there's a four-year-old playing and the four-year-old rolls an 11. The 11 would land them on the go-to-jail spot, right? That four-year-old is going to start crying and otherwise making a nuisance of him or herself yeah. the minute that happens. And they say, I want to go 12 spaces. And the rest of the people say, fine, right? Clearly against the quote-unquote rules. 
But after that happens, can you say that those people aren't playing the game? Can you say that they've broken their fundamental rule? Or, or in fact, has the rule been more complicated all along? What ha, ha, is the authority? You know, one thing you got to do first, though, is figure out what you're going to do with me because I'm pitching a fit about letting the kid go 12. Well, <laughs> when I said four-year-old, I was actually referring to you all along. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think one, one little question is whether people accept it but think it's wrong or think it's think it's okay. So, the, you know, the, whatever it is, the four-year-old uh, role, is that a rule they'll continue to apply in the future when the four-year-old rolls the dice again? Or are they just doing this one time for, and they have some sort of, like, starry decisis rule that, like, even if we, <laughs> even if we broke the rules once, we'll, we'll move on. Right. I, I'm assuming we're going to do it again because we don't want, we want to avoid temper tantrums in the future, too. So, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different game. It's Monopoly Prime. Right, it's Monopoly Prime with a new house rule. It's not that big of a deal, but you'll notice the difference if uh, then I come to your house, I wasn't there at the first game, and suddenly this new rule comes up, and I'm like, whoa, I've never played it that way, right. uh, and I'm not sure I'm okay with this game. <laughs> and then right. we actually have to resolve our disagreement or figure out how to get past it if we want to keep playing. And, and we can have different kinds of reasons for this, and in the piece I break them down into these levels, and I try to show that there is kind of a hierarchy of, how, of, of the level at which kind of... Um, theoretical disagreement can occur, which explains both, I think, Dworkin's point and Leiter's point at the same time, at least I try to, and explains why no matter how far you go, there's always a primitive level. Like there's a level at which law is always primitive. Right. And here, like people could have, well, I'm just going to go along with what you say because you're the host and I have an idea that the host should be authoritative for these kinds of things. Or, you know, I'm going to go over with whatever I think is going to lead to the most fun. Or I'm going to, people can have different kinds of basic reasons uh, for going along. One of the things going on here is, is I think, uh, how should we think about breaking the rules? So I guess I see your hypo as, yes, we've just changed the rules of the game a little bit in the middle. It's just not that big a deal because the rules of Monopoly aren't that big a deal. Monopoly is, you know, only an okay game in the first place. <laughs> but when we have legal rules and especially like fundamental legal rules on which the structure of our politics depends, the stakes go higher. So imagine for some reason we decided to, to cancel the presidential debates and instead resolve the presidential election through a monopoly game, passed a constitutional amendment saying that's what we would do. Then I think if, if suddenly, you know, three quarters of the way through the game, Donald Trump announced some new rule for how he handles auctions or dice rolls of 12 uh, and demanded that we have a new rule, we would all say, whoa, Changing the rules now is going, to be, is going to be a really big deal, and we're not sure we're okay with that. Yeah, but you, you see, you yourself, I mean, you point out in the law of interpretation that in some sense you can't really say the right, you can't say what, whether an interpretation of a statute is right or wrong until you know the point of the adoption of that statute. I mean, um, you know, why are, we, why are we asking that question in the first place? Um, I think that's earlier in the piece, and, I, and, and that's something I very much agree with. I don't know if that's, I probably mischaracterized, but um, uh, when, when so, so when we don't play with the auction rule, when we open it up and we and and someone objects immediately, wait a minute, there's this thing in the instruction book about the auction rule, and and we all say no, that's not the way anybody ever plays. I didn't even know about that, and someone else says I knew about that, but that's not the way we play. In some sense, I mean, are we breaking the rules, or are we playing according to the rules of the game that we've established? I think that what we're doing is we are try- we are playing in such a way that achieves excellence in our cooperation as we perceive it, and and, and that is which is an inherently presentist kind of outlook. But it's an interpretation, right? So everybody agrees that the instructions are data, right? And authoritative data in some ways, right? Right. But our interpretation of those rules is informed by all sorts of things with an eye toward making our cooperation excellent. 
if someone all of a sudden, you know, every time it's their turn, they throw pieces in the air and, yeah, you know. It sort of folds in on itself because one person's criterion about what would make our cooperation excellent is the extent to which it hues to a, a writtenness, uh, a written authority that we could right. point to. Right. And, and, and people, people who absolutely refuse to play with the auction rule and someone else who absolutely insists on playing with the auction rule are not going to be able to play the game together. Fair point. Right. And, and they're only going to be able to play if one of them yields and accepts the fact that their view, and then they can have a, they could have an argument <laughs> right. about it. They can right. have an argument about which is the better rule. Right. Right. And they could, and at some point they're going to have to agree to disagree and someone's going to win that argument. They can have that argument again the next turn. They can keep having the argument, but there's a fundamental distinction in my mind between trying to convert other people to your way of modeling the cooperation, which means creating a, a, a workable mental model that really instantiates the rules and against which you can simulate various outcomes, right? You, you try to convince other people to adopt your model, but there's a superior, more general model that you both accept, right? And so even if you can't convince them to adopt your specific model, the one that includes the auction rule, you at least have a more general model that we're going to play this game with reference somehow to the instructions in a way that's going to cause us to actually play. If we both accept that, then, then we are willing to yield. But maybe, maybe something will come down the pike. Like, suppose that I'm on the Supreme Court, and I see the other members of the Supreme Court use a method of interpretation with which I disagree. And I keep writing, that's, you know, this is no good, but, you know, um, I dissent, but, you know, I respectfully dissent, right? And I allow <laughs> it to go through. And, and then... And then in the, uh, maybe there's a terrorist attack or something big happens, and the majority opinion now says, right, yes, the Constitution requires freedom of speech, it requires uh, reasonable um, search and seizure, it requires, the, you know, there's the, uh, Congress has to suspend habeas, it has all of these protections in it, but we think the, con- the Constitution does not speak to this sort of, you know, incident. It adopts what I think is this odious language of a lot of politicians, that the fundamental job of the government is to keep us safe, right, rather than to keep us free. So the fundamental job of our government is to keep us safe, and they're complying with that basic mandate, which is even more basic than the, uh, than the Constitution, and compliance with that higher law of keeping citizens safe justifies all of these things, which includes, you know, warrantless detention and camps and all kinds of crazy stuff. At that point, I say, you know what, I'm off the boat, because I thought that what I had agreed to was a model which said, you know, a rule of five, right? But in fact, I now realize that I only yield to the five when they tie their decision to the Constitution, right? There has to be some minimum, there has to be an interpretation of a Constitution within a certain zone of correctness. Otherwise, I jump off the boat. Okay, Will, and then there's something I've been, I, I got to say or I'm going to stroke out. So, Will. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I don't want to cause a medical problem here. So if you want to go, uh, I'll just say, I think I, I like a lot of that picture. Uh, I think for me, the, the meta picture I see is not human excellence, but is uh, continuity with the founding, is this commitment to the sense that we're still engaged in the same constitutional project we were at the founding, and you have to have a theory of how you got back there. And then we have lots of sub-disagreements within that, where, where we disagree about which, one, which ones reach that. But I think, think, actually, I agree with a lot of that picture. And one other, one other thing I'm struck by is the, the reminder that often a lot of us are engaged in jurisprudence without even knowing it. Right. Uh, like We have implicit jurisprudential commitments and implicit a sense of what the law is and how those things work without ever reading Hart or, or Raz or anything like that. And that's, I'll say, part of why at first in these papers I tried not to get into that either. because so I was trying to write in the register that lawyers think about these problems. I think jurisprudence actually is really illuminating because suddenly when the conflicts come up, you want to scratch under and see what's going on. But, but I think a lot of people never think about it in these terms, and, and your examples actually show us why. 
and it just makes things i think it makes everything a little bit clearer when you observe that you know your your jurisprudential commitment which your is basically your commitment to that set of reasons that causes you to select certain things as the law and certain things as not being the law right your conception of what it means to be the law the conception of authority like these are always operating and either you surface those things or you don't right right okay, okay. so okay. Yes. Okay. joe's the, about to stroke the, out as the, he all said, right so. so so the monopoly example the rules one thing i was uh, realizing as you were describing it is that uh, and it and it relates i think to will's point about continuity through time and the salience of that value uh that one one thing that the writtenness of the rules uh, and resort to the rules could assist with in cooperating and, and fostering cooperation is um, it's a way for the new arrival to be assured that the old hand isn't just acting self-interestedly, right? When the, when the new arrival is trying to learn what to do and how to do it, uh, they might worry Maybe, maybe not, who knows, but they might, in a given fact scenario, worry that the old hand who says, ah, the way to do it is this, right, um, is acting out of self-interest. This, uh, you and I have talked a bunch of times before, Christian, about the sort of, um, the way in which some people might, it, it seems as if they worry a lot about whether they're being a chump, Right. Or not, right? And so I'm sort of describing the, the chump anxious person. And we describe this, frankly, as like the, within us all. I mean, you can always look sure, at this within sure, sure. being like, like the, the, the conservative impulse in us all versus the more liberal and open impulse in us all. Or the conservative imp- impulse is like, even if it hurts us all, I don't want to be a chump, right? And the liberal impulse is I just have to make peace with being a chump. Right? Have, didn't we talk about we, it that we way? We have talked about it that <laughs> way. Although I don't want to, I don't, I don't think it has to have that valence for the point I'm about to make, which is that for the person who is a new arrival, the written rules and resort to the rules is a way to coordinate and and worry a lot less about whether the old hand is acting self interestedly, because because the rules show that there's at least a way to talk to each other that the rules indicate. Uh, if we have enough language in common to both look at them and and reach something like agreement about what they mean, that there's a way to sort of get past the self-interest worry. That 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 ability to have old hands and new arrivals playing together mm-hmm. and cooperating is writ large a, a, an important point about continuity over time. That's Shapiro's theory. And the writtenness yeah. of rules to yeah. help assist with continuity through time. Mm-hmm. And, and right. to Will's point about that, the salience of that and the importance of that. Now, what's, what's interesting to me and perhaps in this connection and, and is perhaps my single biggest kind of doubt about um, the original status of originalism in the 17 whatevers um, is that um, I, I don't, I just don't see a lot of evidence that the, people from that era acted as if they believed that people would a hundred years later or even 50 years later worry a whole lot about what the original group of folks thought that if they had if they had thought that people in the deep future would be worrying about it they would have behaved with respect to writtenness um, in a much more complex deep and thoroughgoing way than they appear to have done 
so that's my that's my own personal skeptic source of skepticism about originalism is that I just don't see if I were an originalist in 1790 I would have acted very differently than they seem to have acted to me but that's just really more about me than anybody else I like the continuity point I like the I like the coordinating through time point I think it's really important so I don't know if you guys uh, follow the the literature on Madison or uh, uh, Mary Builder at at Boston has this great new book on called Madison's Hand on his revisions of his notes of the Constitutional Convention. But Madison, over the course of his life, was obsessed with setting out carefully the record of what happened at the Constitutional Convention in a sometimes self-serving way, precisely because he was worried that, or, or hoped that people would, would take what he said and what happened at the convention seriously. I mean, he would publicly say, what happened at the convention is not the most important thing. It's what, what the ratifiers did that really mattered. But but he also acted as if he thought what happened at the convention uh, was really important, which is both why he kept his notes so carefully and also uh, uh, played with them in the, in the way he did. Because the struggle over interpretation and the right way of interpreting was a live issue then as it is now, as you point out in the piece, right? Right. I mean, and, and at different levels of abstraction. So even Madison was writing about this inclusive versus exclusive originalism problem. He says at various places, you know, strict construction of the Constitution is wrong. You shouldn't interpret it with the strictness that you give to a penal statute. But at the same time, you shouldn't interpret the Constitution with such latitude that anything goes. There has to be this intermediate uh, amount of strictness that's sort of true to the the fundamental principles and text and understood meaning of the Constitution. What Joe said actually reminded me of a, of a different and interesting point, which is I, I still think it's true. It's just deeply true that the people at the founding did not we're not necessarily thinking about a hundred years out. You know, they had they had more immediate concerns, like could they hold the country together despite sectional conflicts over slavery long enough to not get attacked by all the European powers and <laughs> you know survive the next winter? Like yeah. I think that's yeah. that's deeply true, uh, and that's where the positivism comes in. You know, it's not it's not because of them that we use the Constitution as the framework for government today, right? It's because of us, right. uh, and we've chosen to do that, even if we're making more of it than they expected. And so, so what is your account of, um, of legal change? If, so so if, if the reason to be originalist is because we observe people acting from the internal point of view with, and I know that the, if Charles is listening, he's going to get upset at the constant reference to the internal, external distinction. But uh, if, we, if we observe people acting from that point of view as originalists, and we conclude from that 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 actually is our rule of recognition, that originalism is what picks out um, uh, and, and, uh, certain interpretations as the correct ones, but then we, we could change that tomorrow, right? If someone made a convincing enough case that originalism is, is a bad idea. And for example, um, you should interpret texts, but you should interpret them from a contemporary perspective. And the reason to do that is because as you are closer in time to the enactment, the contemporary um, the contemporary view will more closely follow maybe the original meaning because it's closer in time, and that the fidelity to the original meaning naturally decays over time as language and problems and other things change people's attitudes toward that text, and that that's what you want because as the um, beca- because it basically a kind of an anti entrenchment thing even for constitutions right that that no f- no present people should be slaves to the past and the the degree of dead hand control will naturally wane with now, now i'm not putting that forward as a as a theory right now i'm just suggesting that if if i can make that argument convince enough people then maybe people would change their minds and and then we would observe something different about people's actions from the internal point of view with respect to interpretation and 
So are you making the argument that we should not change? In other words, that what you observe positively is what should be happening? Or are you making the argument that that just is what's happening and therefore originalism is the right method to apply now? Do you get my distinction? Yeah, no. So I'm, I'm pretty open-minded. I mean, I, I think some of the normative arguments in favor of originalism have some things going for them, but I'm, I'm genuinely not sure what, uh, whether, whether we should change to something else, uh, whether, we can, whether we can do better. Um, so I think that's right. I think the exhilarating thing of being a positivist is you have to be open to, to change. Uh, I do think this, though. I think that the people in charge of that change are, should not necessarily be the government officials who swore an oath to obey this constitution and to follow the law that we have. So I think when we, when we ask people to become judges and to take their oath of office and we give them this terrifying power to like lock people up or order them executed or, or you know, strike down major federal statutes, I think we're giving that to them with the promise that they're not going to go crazy and change the rules. So I think if we, the people, wanted to change them, that's one thing. But I think judges have taken a promise not to do that. But, but you see, as a, as, a, as a justice, maybe I could say, you know, I'm now convinced that our method of interpretation, though, though what people do, is an error and would be better done another way. And so I'm going to dissent. My dissent here, though, will have the effect only of dissenting and suggesting an alternate way. And it will not be until I convince four other justices that we will adopt a different form of interpretation. And the effect of that dissent is then to signal that in the future there could be a different there could be a different attitude toward interpretation, which reflects a commitment to a different rule. So wouldn't that be exactly the right way to shift? Would be for me to dissent from an originalist opinion and say I think there's another way to do it if I were so committed to change? I mean so so that might be descriptive of the way it happens. I'm normatively troubled by it because I think when judges take an oath, uh, take their judicial oath, they are making a promise to follow the law that we have. So I think when you as a judge say, well, now that I'm here, I wish I hadn't made that promise. I, I see something better to do. I think the answer should be, too bad, you promised. And we might not have given you this job if you hadn't promised. Yeah, but the law we have includes change as a backdrop. That, I mean, that, that, yeah, that, that's why I was trying to get at what the theory of change was. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, so, so our theory of change, my theory of change is, is one that, that does not give judges the power to change the law. Right. I think judges are supposed to, I mean, there's lots of discretion involved. We, we've talked about that. But the judges are not supposed to be the ones who say, well, I think we can do better. Uh, because nobody, nobody made judges king of the Constitution. But, but, uh, All right, hold on, hold on. We could talk for another hour. Ah! I would love to talk for another <laughs> hour. And, and in fact, I, 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 think, I think we should commit right now to the idea of an oral argument con. Where there there could be cosplay. I'm yeah. not saying there can't be cosplay, but sold. There, but, but 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 I, look, I I got I got to make this point because I know we're out of time. But but, but my daughter is going to kill me if I, I don't un- get her to this test. I understand. Okay, a- and it just seems to me that that the this very most recent exchange and and the debate about what does and doesn't constitute changing the law and how that connects to precedent and stare decisis proves to me that Charles ultimately is correct about the fact that this is really question marks all the way down. I, I knew you were going to drop a bomb and it would be unfair not to let Will respond. And yet I am. It's not I'm, unfair I'm because it's an eternal conversation. We're going to come back. We're going to talk again. Last word to Will. Last word to Will. Maybe you should have me and Charles back sometime and we can we can duke it out together. I think we should do that. Awesome. All, all four. We sold. I'd love to do that live, too. Well, that'd be great. But, but at the very least, we should do another episode because, well, I feel like we've shortchanged you because there's so many great ideas here. And, you know, thanks. Thanks for joining and us. And in shortchanging him, we've shortchanged America. <laughs> just... uh, you, 
you guys are better than anybody else I've talked to at seeing all these levels. So <laughs> That's really nice of you to say. And uh, um, I really do want to thank you for these pieces, not the least of which you really, um, you gave me a view of originalism that really helped me write the last piece and has helped me to engage more deeply between you and Larry Solom and uh, a bunch of other writers. I don't want to shortchange anybody, but it's like, this is a great time to be alive and thinking about these problems. So thanks great for point. that. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to hit stop.